Okay, so I think that we are ready to start. Um, thank you, everyone, for being here with us tonight. I want to start by thanking uh, the Soho House and Ana Clara for continuing supporting our year-round programming. Of course, also I want to thank our panelists. Thank you for being here with us tonight and being open to share your insights. This theme, um, this panel discussion is introducing one of the curatorial themes of Untitled this year, which is Curating in the Digital Age. It is a theme that is centered on how the curatorial practices are evolving thanks to the adoption of new technologies, as well as um, the visual experimentation with digitalization and new viewing experiences. Uh, gender equality in the arts is the second curatorial theme that we will have at this year's edition. We will see over 60% of galleries showcasing female and non-binary artists, which is, it's been great to see the support of the galleries, artists, um, on, on the curatorial themes. And these two curatorial themes are not only uh, guiding our year-round programming, but also the curatorial selection, special projects, and, um, and exhibitor opportunities. And of course, it shows Untitled's support to inclusivity, diversity, and accessibility. Uh, we look forward to welcoming you all to Untitled Art this December. We open with a VIP and press preview on Tuesday, December 5th at 12 to 7, and then we will run in through Sunday. And with no further ado, I pass the mic over to Ana Clara. Thank you. Thank you all for being here with us tonight. Thank you, Clara. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for being here. I love seeing this amount of people for this kind of discussion. Um, it's fun. It makes it funner for us to be up here and talk about it and talk about something that we're passionate about. So I appreciate it. Um, I'm Anna. I founded Art Club here about three years ago, and we've been always doing collaborations with Untitled. And then we started a series of talks last year, and it's nice to see it keep moving forward. So thank you for helping to organize. Um, the panel's awesome. The panel's really great. Uh, we're lucky to have these three people here in Miami and to have some of their time with us here today. Um, I have Pablo Rodriguez Frale, who is here next to me. He's the founder of the RFC Art Collection and a lot more, but we're focusing on the art collection today. <laughs> um, Stephanie Seidel on the other edge there. She is the curator at the ICA Miami. And Karen Grimson here in the middle is the curator of the Craig Robbins Collection and director of cultural programming for the Design District. I have a feeling a lot of you guys know our friends up here. So, you know, say hello. <laughs> <laughs> So when Clara invited me to moderate, you know, and talk about art and the curating in the digital age, I was like, I don't think I'm the right person. <laughs> I don't know much about digital art. But the truth is she forced me to look beyond what we think about digital and, and think about it in different ways. And not just how the digital has affected art production, but how it has affected curatorial practices, institutional practices, and how they have developed in accordance with the advance of technology. So... That's what, you know, we're, we're talking about some digital art, but we're talking about how technology and, and advancements have affected all sectors of the art world, right? Or some of the sectors of the art world here tonight. Um, 
I wanted to start with Stephanie because I want to start and get this out of the way, which is like the part that is difficult for me to talk about is NFTs. Um, and, I, you know, when you think about the digital age, we automatically think NFT, or at least I do. Um, so I'm going to go into that first and we'll keep going in, in a different direction. But I read somewhere that the ICA became the first major museum to collect an NFT with the donation of CryptoPunk hashtag 5293 by a trustee. So I, I read that in a few places. So I want to make sure that's correct. That's correct. <laughs> Before we go on. Um, in that moment, what I wanted to ask you, what is the general reaction first of the team when you receive a piece like that and then of the public? And how does the museum prepare for something like that, given that it's a new medium for the museum to take care of and to collect? Yeah, um, thank you for the question. Excited to be here. So, as you said, ICA was one of the first museums worldwide to uh, start collecting NFTs. And I think it just really resonates with our mission to kind of explore the most cutting edge, most interesting art and ideas of our time. And NFTs definitely are part of a cultural zeitgeist and a conversation we're having. And we want to be part of this discussion and as artists are exploring this medium like we we only we don't only have a crypto punk we also have an nft by nina chanel apney who we did a show with last year so she's also very interested in exploring this as a way of expanding the discourse and the communication beyond the physical object in a gallery so it's been really interesting and i think in a way, it's it's not so different from what museums have been doing when video art became a thing. It was really challenging and it, it's an interesting conversation to have to rethink on how do you deal with new media in a museum. And it's, it's never a conversation that ends. So we're working with experts um, in Web3. Um, I'm definitely not the expert on the team, but we're working with a lot of experts and in pursuing like how this can be displayed. And actually, we did also display the CryptoPunk 305. That's the other CryptoPunk we have in the collection on site last year during Art Basel on a screen. So that's continuously exploring because I think when NFTs first came up, it was even like, how, how do we even show this? So now there are ways and it's exciting to see how this continues and evolves. Um, Pablo, we've worked together on some ideas with, around NFTs, but um, I'll let you speak about it. <laughs> um, I'm really interested when I was looking into, not looking into your collection, but I learned about a few of the pieces in your collection. Uh, you had a, an exhibition recently in New York, but I'm really interested in one piece in particular. It's the piece by Daniel Arsham. Mm -hmm. It's called Eroding and Reforming Venus in Avalon. So from what I understood about reading about it, it changes over time and it, its lifespan is about 72 years. And so it's developing over those 72 years and changing and, and living, right? I wanted to ask you what happens from there? Does it cease to exist? Does it stop existing? Or does it just live in that final state? Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I love this question because um, first of all, thank you for, for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, uh, I'm honored to be here. Uh, uh, um, uh, here with you today, but uh, I actually love that work. And uh, it's a great example of, I think, what this digital revolution can really bring to the art world. Uh, I think it's uh, um, uh, including uh, the variable of time. Uh, I think that this medium really allows, uh, you know, for artists to really play uh, with dynamism, with the digital, with time, uh, uh, with time, and, and this work is a great example. What happens is that this work evolves. Uh, what happens is that it erodes uh, the general work or the visuals in the work, they do erode over time. And it takes 72.4 years, uh, which is the average lifespan of a human on Earth today, in order for the beginning of the work to reach to the, to the final stage. 
in the final stage. Uh, my understanding, even though I have not yet seen the the, the work in its final conclusion, is going to live with us as we as we you know as we go through time. Uh, it should be the final the final version of the work. However, I think that uh, that again, this is one example, and again, it's Daniel Arsham showing, you know. Uh, um, um, uh, true uh, thoughtfulness in how they come into the space, but they're not the only one. This, this medium really allows for creativity to flow in different ways that we haven't seen before. We, we've had that, we have had digital art now for, for a few decades. We've had different uses of mediums, but for the first time, the blockchain really allows to play with time. If, if I may, and just an extra 30 seconds. Um, um, <laughs> Uh, people, for example, in his uh, in his in his known uh, work, the kinetic sculpture is called Human One. Uh, that is actually now we were uh, last week in Crystal Bridges uh, uh, presenting it because we loaned the work to to Crystal Bridges for an exhibition that was very well received. That work is a dynamic work, and in many ways as well, uh, uh, certain actions can influence and and, uh, and 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 the work reacts or people can make the work react to certain events or or, or anything that can happen around and. And again, this is just two examples. There's many more. There's a beautiful example by Dead Beef uh, in a collaboration with LACMA uh, that I recommend everybody take a look. It's a little bit more sophisticated and complex uh, than to say here in just 10 seconds. But um, uh, the, the, the component of time, it is one of the variables that is included with this movement that I find uh, particularly very fascinating. So along with that, you know, I keep thinking about um, heirs to different artworks and thinking about the afterlife you know, after we're gone and the artwork is here and where we know so much about painting conservation and then sculpture, even kind of ephemeral work and how to treat it and, and see it over time, talking about time. How do you see with the constant change in technologies, how do you think about the future of your collection and whoever is going to take care of your collection after you're gone? I think about it very carefully because this is uh, this is uh, something that is indeed very important. And, and again, I do think that tokenization, the, the 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 innovation and the technology of tokenization is incredibly important because it really draws that direct line, immutable line to provenance, which I think is incredibly important uh, in the art world. Now, I would say that, uh, and I don't want to shoot our industry in the foot as I'm saying this, but. Uh, the reality is that as a new technology, as a new method of distributing uh, this digital art, uh, there are some infrastructure components that still need to be built. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that some of some of the artists, not all of them, but I encourage all of them to really think about this, is what is indeed going to happen with my work after I'm here. Uh, you know, not, not 10 years from now, but, you know, a thousand years from now. And, and again, I do know I am uh, aware of some conversations because I've had them with some of these artists, uh, but I still recommend more and more artists to think over time. Uh, I, I cannot give any information because it's not mine, but people in particular is really, really spending some serious thought into their legacy even after they're here. Um, Karen, I want to go to you now because I think you were the other uh, panelist who was a little bit hesitant. Like, why, why me? Um, and there's there's definitely a why you <laughs> when we talk about digital art. But I want to mention you were the curator in the Department of Drawings and Prints at MoMA before moving to Miami. And when I think about paper and I think about drawing, there's nothing more material than that, you know. And so when I said, oh, let's talk about digital art, you did bring up one piece in particular and one project that you worked on for the design district, and that was the mural for Criola, a Brazilian artist. And then you had mentioned, you know what? It's not that she 
works with digital art, but she uses these, these digital tools in a way that didn't exist before that helped out during the project. Can you speak a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for your question. Um, so first to address my hesitation, which is very real, um, and is related to my experience in studying art and working with art, having been extremely analog. I studied art history with transparencies and slides. I think at uh, the University of Buenos Aires, it's still taught that way. Um, you know, I studied photography when reflex cameras were the main device. Now they're almost not even taught. Um, and my work in museums has always dealt with modernist works and, like you said, drawings, prints, works on paper in general. But I welcomed your challenge because it did force me to look deeper and... Um, I thought Criolla's project was an example of how digital technology comes into play, allowing artists to manipulate the scale of things and grant them accessibility to take on larger projects. For instance, um, most of my muralist friends would have shied away 10 years ago from a wall the size of the wall that we gave to Criolla, which is 140 feet wide by 40 feet tall. So it's a massive wall in the design district. Um, and the possibility of designing uh, an artwork on her iPad, which is something very common across disciplines nowadays in quilts, in painting, in photography, um, it, it really allowed her to take this challenge on, which I think maybe 15 years ago she wouldn't have dared to take on a wall that big. And then there's also the question of digital technology as a tool for accessibility, um, which, you know, 2020 and the pandemic really crystallized for all of us when museums closed and, you know, the curatorial staff was concerned about how to reach audiences and how to make the holdings still accessible. Um, and that sort of exploded into this hyperabundance of digital materials online. And I think the or the conclusion of all that was that um, the digital version of an artwork that is, say, a painting or a drawing will never replace the physical work, which I think we all agree on. Um, but it does solve, for instance, the crucial issue that curators who work with drawings think about, which is how to display sketchbooks, for instance. So sketchbooks are the most intimate, the most immediate sort of train of thought um, of a draftman, and it's technically impossible to display them in an exhibition setting unless you have a person flipping through the pages until digital page turners came into play and they sort of slid right into the um, concept of exhibition design and it has since then enabled entire sketchbooks to be displayed and manipulated by the viewer without actually manipulating the pages. Glad you bring that up. I'm, I'm going to move around in my questions now because of the flow. Um, so, <laughs> so when you were at MoMA, and, and I want to mention also that at MoMA right now, there's a piece by Rafika Nadal, who Pablo has an involvement with the exhibition of that piece at MoMA. So it's so interesting that we're having these conversations. And my question is nothing with Rafik, even though it's very cool. And I saw it. It's very cool. I, <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you, if there was ever an incentive to have these types of discussions that we're having today interdepartmentally between the curatorial teams at MoMA, because there the departments are so traditional and so separate, at least from the outside. 
Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. They have such an important department of media performance and were some of the first collectors of video art, performance art and sound art. Was there ever discussion, even though you were in the drawing department, these kinds of conversations about digital age and curatorial practices? It's interesting. So um, I think cross-departmental conversations were the main uh, drive for the rehanging of the collection in 2019 that made the permanent collection become dynamic. So it was we were forced to have dialogues across department. That, however, didn't you know, make up for the fact that a print curator is a specialist in print and a media curator is a specialist in video or sound or performance. Um, even though MoMA's architecture and design and media and performance department has been at the forefront of challenging acquisitions models, for instance, they acquired in uh, 2010 the original emoji set from 1999. <laughs> then they acquired the at sign, which is the only free acquisition. Um, so, you know, that was radical for a museum so entrenched in traditional methods. Um, but I think the answer lies somewhere in between that, you know, spectrum of, yes, we had all those cross-departmental dialogues, but still the specialist is a specialist in their own field. And so I think it's up to, you know, current curators, future curators, how how much of a bandwidth they'll be able to have. And MoMA is a very traditional model because of the six departmental, um, yeah, collections. So you have architecture and design, drawings and prints, film, media and performance, um, photography, and painting and sculpture, the king of all departments. <laughs> but a museum like ICA um, doesn't have that kind of compartmentalization of the collection. So maybe that's the way to move forward. May, may I add a please, couple of things? Please uh, do, please, everyone. Uh, uh, you've been uh, certainly more involved and are a lot more knowledgeable from that side. But uh, I'll say two things. One, I just can't share the news yet, but there will be an announcement from MoMA coming soon uh, that I recommend you you check. It's a little bit really embracing this digital this digital movement uh, in a in a in a in a strong way, and that all my interactions from the outside, as I've been involved with uh, with Refika MoMA. Um, I've come to see why indeed they are MoMA. They are so professional. They are have been looking now for a very, very long time. They're very thoughtful about their approach. And again, they're taking their time to not overstep. Uh, uh, but it has been wonderful how uh, they have been very open, in my opinion, to opening the conversation and seeing where this is going to lead us. So, so kudos to your ex-colleagues uh, and, <laughs> and to you for that, because I really do think that uh, uh, the role that institutions are playing, not only MoMA, but many other institutions, is imperative uh, for uh, the continuation of digital art uh, uh, um, in the world. Yeah. Yeah, and it, sorry to no, just no, hop on to that. I think what what Karen mentioned with COVID and the lockdown, what it's really encouraged us to do is also to think of what is the museum outside of the building that can that people can visit. And um, I think there's so many interesting ways to kind of continue. And I don't know if I take away the question, but I, mean, that, that, <laughs> I wanted to bring up that because I think the ICA during COVID, everybody in Miami, that's, you know, pays attention to what's going on in the institutions. The ICA was really really a leader and hey, what are we doing to continue the programming? How are we using our technologies to be able to communicate with the public? I wanted to ask you in particular about a program 
um, that happened during COVID. And I think it was a commission program for, there was a call to local artists. I'm not sure if it was just local or not, but can you speak about this program and how you think during this vulnerable time that it was really like in the, in the thick of COVID, how it affected the artists and how it affected the artistic community in general? Yeah, thank you for the question. So, yeah, in I think very early, kind of the last week of March, first week of April, we're like, what are we doing? Um, we were scheduled to open this large element column show, and I can talk about that more. We kind of moved parts of that into the website too, but especially we're like, okay, we're all kind of at home and we want to support artists in Miami because so many of them had shows scheduled, they had commissions uh, lined up and gallery shows. So it was particularly precarious for artists. So we're thinking, okay, how, how can we help and what can we do to kind of keep, um, keep art accessible from everyone's safety of their own home? So we invited, in the end, it was a total of 16 artists we invited to make a video commission. So we, we reached out first to eight artists um, with help and support from the Knight Foundation and asked us like, look, can you do like a five minute video? It shouldn't be a big production. You know, you don't, it wasn't safe. So don't go out with a team and make like a big video shoot. But we're sure maybe you have a project that was scheduled and it didn't happen. Or maybe two years ago you shot this footage or you had something you were like thinking of. And now's the time to kind of go back to your drawer and see what's in there. And you can just, you know, anything you want to do, just five minutes and just send us a video file. And actually very quickly, we heard back from the artist super enthusiastically. And the first round included all Miami-based artists, which was Terrence Price, Farron Humes, among others. Um, trying to think who else, Domingo Castillo, um, Christine Brash. And literally within two or three weeks, we had eight video files and we just started releasing them and hosting them on the website. So um, it was a new video every week. And then we did a second round because it was so successful and actually expanded it to artists who are based outside of Miami too, and ended up also showing them in the museum actually on site to make like a black box and kind of bring, bring that back. But it, it was just really fun to kind of have that form and be able to support artists because they, they received a commissioning fee and kind of continue the conversation and also just have something to look forward for. I don't know. I, at least for me in the pandemic, it felt good to have this like regular, it's like, okay, every Wednesday, I don't know, 11 a.m., we released the video uh, on all our channels and it was just kind of like structuring also a little bit. It's something to look forward to. And yeah. I remember that time, but that's why I really wanted to ask you about that program because I think it's it was powerful, honestly. Um, and I like that you guys showed it in, in the physical form later also. <laughs> yeah. Um, so thinking about digital... Oh, and sorry. Then, and I, oh, no, I also just wanted to add that yeah. it's also really nice to see that these works, aside from ICA, are also yeah. now traveling because it's still with exactly. the artists and they've been shown in film festivals and more internationally in group shows. Yeah. So it's really nice to kind of see this afterlife. And I think Omar showed just one in the Fountainhead Biennial of uh, Minya Biabiani. Yeah. 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 When you mentioned that the, that the exhibition later was actually in the museum, I thought about the crossover between physical and digital because I don't think that I understood so much what that meant before COVID, but then living so much on this digital, I don't know, on the screen, and then thinking about how it could translate to physical and especially meeting people that I had never met. 
but for like a year I saw them in the digital. Anyway, that's not what this conversation is. Um, <laughs> I wanted to ask you, Pablo. It, it is actually. <laughs> Good. Well, my question is for you because so much of the focus, you know, regarding your collection has been centered around the digital component. But I know that you collect physical works as well and quite a few. Um, how do they play within the collection as a whole? And do you consider them two con separate entities or are they together? What's the dialogue like between them? And if you could talk about the exhibition in New York also uh, it, uh, earlier yeah, this year, because yeah, I think it's super interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, again, I love that question. And, and you know, my wife and I, who, my wife is over there and and she, she she's usually not a... a uh, not very open, uh, but she's she's really the eyes and, and really the driver behind the collection. Uh, but uh, you know, we collect art. Uh, we collect art uh, uh, and uh, uh, inclusive. Uh, we, we, when we say art, we say any any really form of uh, form of art. We actually started collecting well before this digital revolution. Is tokenized digital revolution, but it is true that uh, because of the circumstances, organically, our life has taken us to have a very strong concentration on the digital domain. Now, having said this, and and you you said it very well, and thank you very much for, for all of that you did during the pandemic to actually continue to engage with people in the art world. But, you know, this, this, this let's say, revolution uh, was sparked by, 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 by the pandemic. Uh, but uh, for us, since the beginning, we very quickly realized that as much as we like, uh, we support this digital revolution and we think it's an explosion of talent and innovation, uh, at the end, we're humans. We're here. We like to engage. We like to be part of a community. And as, as, as great as a digital environment can be inside, you know, a, a metaverse or, or a digital gallery, the reality is that experiencing art in person, the aura, the general aura around the art, uh, it's something that cannot be very much conveyed uh, in general, uh, you know, through screens. So, uh, again, in our house, in our collection, you're going to see the constant conversation between the physical and the digital, whereas the majority of works are digitally native in uh, in creation. They do in many ways have a physical component, whether that is in a screen, which is also valid, or uh, in a print, an object that is related, or some other form. Uh, there's very creative forms that you can connect uh, connect both. Uh, as well as that, outside of our collection, we've also done through commissions, through artists, and 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 just getting closer to uh, just being alongside other artists. And again, that experiencing, that engaging uh, with the audience from the artist, I think it's imperative. And I'm a, I'm, I'm a huge fan. Uh, and again, here, kudos to Desi because he's really gone to great lengths to always have that conversation, not only with the other works of art that are analog in our collection, but also with the design, with the architecture and the lifestyle. We, at the end of the day, this is our home. Uh, we have a family, we have children, uh, and everything lives in syntony. Everything is approachable. And, uh, and yeah, uh, we, tried, we try very hard to, to really show, uh, you know, uh, the amazing... Uh, uh, innovation that's happening here. So there was an exhibition at Venus over Manhattan earlier this year, like in March, it and it was of your digital collection. Mm -hmm. How was it exhibited? I can't imagine that it was just like a bunch of screens. I feel like it, you guys got more creative than that. And so I wanted to talk about that because that's that's part of the curatorial practice that we're discussing, right? And the development of these ideas. Exactly, exactly. And that, that, is, a, that is a great example. I mean, again, this is uh, without saying anything negative about anybody, anybody or the space, but the reality is that uh, we've seen in the digital ecosystem a lot of just agglomerations of works exhibited together. Uh, not a curated approach, uh, not a thoughtful in general approach. Uh, a lot of a lot of people have really said, okay, this is all digital, you put them everything together and it just goes. Uh, you know, for the first time, uh, to my knowledge, uh, we were able to uh, have a partnership with Anna Lindemann and, and, and 
and, and his gallery, Venus Over Manhattan, where we try to represent a the let's let's call it the different verticals uh, within the digital world because there's not only generative, you have AI, you have also figurative, you have you, you have many many different forms that, that that art in this domain can take, and to really try to show that in a I don't like this word, but in a sophisticated way, in an elegant way, in a way that makes sense. So yes, we did have screens, but we also had some prints. We also had some design works uh, uh, um, uh, that actual physical uh, design, design pieces that have a digital connection. And overall, we try to always uh, be aware of what is the work that is being exhibited uh, alongside? Why is it being exhibited alongside? And to always try to respect that. Uh, I, I would say, however, that that's uh, that's something more than that. Desi was uh, uh, was more involved in the in the curation behind. But um, yeah, again, trying to create. We've always been very focused on creating that bridge yep. between the digital and the physical. And uh, um, and doing so is not just you know telling people come here to this domain, but really create those bridges in between and 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 and, and bring people in yeah. yeah how there's an artist in your collection andres Ressinger. i feel like he's a great example right of bridging bridging those two i wanted to ask you because you've worked so closely with him can you speak to that connection that he has between the digital and the physical realm that simultaneously exists i think it's it's super interesting because he is a designer i've seen his very cool furniture. I've seen his very cool videos and they exist in the same space with an installation. Can you speak a little bit about how that works in his practice? <laughs> yeah, and I love I love that you mentioned Andres. Andres is, I have a, I shouldn't say this out loud, but I have a soft spot for Andres. Uh, Andres is likely uh, my favorite, uh, you know, not only artist, but person, uh, uh, you know, in the world. The reality is that uh, this person is a genius and he he has been now creating with the digital to, with digital tools for a very long time, well before the tokenization revolution. Uh, the, his works, uh, one of them in particular, Hortensia Chair, uh, is really probably defined today as, as 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 one of the most, if not the most, recognizable and important uh, uh, design works of our time. That's how how he he got a little bit of his name. Now, uh, he's multifaceted, multi-talented. Uh, he can create. He's also a musician in training. So their works are, uh, you know, they they are. Digitally native, uh, that's how he creates, uh, but sometimes they do immersive exhibitions. Sometimes he brings uh, design works to their practice. Sometimes it's just some visual, either uh, stills or, or a video. Uh, sometimes he even brought smell uh, to an exhibition that I, that I, that I helped uh, uh, put together. Uh, it was called The Smell of Pink. And again, very multifaceted and always with that with that elegance, with that uh, with that touch that really makes him, uh, you know, above the rest. Um, I, I think that he's uh, there's a lot of creative people in this world, uh, and now with the digital revolution, more and more uh, creative, uh, young creative uh, artists are are showing up. But I think it takes a lot more than just creativity into this world to actually have a successful career. And I think Andres has all the ingredients uh, that is going to make him, uh, you know, continue uh, where he's coming uh, uh, in the path that he's going. Uh, he's incredible and knowledgeable of his craft. He's very disciplined. Uh, he's an incredible. He has a very good personality, which always helps uh, uh, as you're, uh, uh, you know, growing as an artist. And overall, I think that he is able to translate the best that conversation between both. I would say Andres and, and Guayola are probably the two artists that come to mind that immediately, uh, you don't need to be involved in the digital, you can just you know, see their work and immediately be drawn to, uh, to their creations. Thank you. 
Um, Karen, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the public sphere. You've been in Miami for a few years now. You've been working with Craig Robbins' collection. Craig is really an innovator. We've seen what he's done with, with the area. And I wanted to ask you what you've seen. There's so many public works there. I've even taken a group to do a tour and it's so fun and you interact. How has this kind of, you know, attention on the digital affected the way that we interact with work in the public sphere, at least in the design district from your experience? Mm -hmm. um, I think Craig's collection is not very focused on digital art yet. Um, he's very devoted to the manufactured collectible design. Um, but that said, since last year, we've had conversations about the metaverse, how that would uh, translate into a public space like the design district. So far, I think, you know, he's collected, he's personally collected video works by Dara Birnbaum, Dara Friedman. He has light pieces by Olafur Eliasson. Um, and these works are already, you know, over 10 years old um, or more. So the district has taken digital technology as a marketing tool. That's what I've seen. Um, they've created this digitally animated short film that is an artwork in and of itself, I think. And it sort of replicates the experience of a character going through the design district um, and interacting with a public art installation. So the Buckminster Fuller, um, you know, John Baldessari's murals, uh, the architecture and design in the space. And I think that's a beautiful creation that was prompted by a marketing need to attract people to come to the district. And so, in a sense, it speaks volumes to the popularity of digital art, um, how we're maybe all digitally native now, who we all understand, you know, what that looks and what that feels like and what that means if we go to the place that the animation is inviting us to visit. Um, so, yeah, I think Craig is still on the verge of whether or not to collect digital art um, in a, you know, in a focused way, but the district has definitely jumped on that wagon. Thank you. Um, Stephanie, I wanted to talk about interaction also with the public beyond the program that you guys came up with during COVID. I went on the website to do a little research and there's so much going on. <laughs> there, I found out that there are all these resources there, you know, I knew that there were lectures and, and great and whatever, but there's also pri free private museum educator-led virtual tours for groups of 10 people or more to connect to the global audience. And there's all of these elements. I wanted to talk to you as a curator for the institution. What other types of digital initiatives have you seen that have had an impact on the communication with the public and with the audience. Yeah, um, so actually inspired by this digitally-led tours that we've also kind of uh, taken back into the museum. So we offer free tours daily on site. Um, but from that very positive re response, we started actually doing Instagram tours of our shows. <laughs> so for every exhibition, there's a cura curator-led Instagram tour, five to ten minutes, and we tried it, I think, I'm trying to remember, I feel the first one we did was Carlos Alfonso um, that my colleague Jean Moreno did. And then I did one for uh, Michelle Majeros. And 
I'm, I must say, to my surprise, we had, I think, 1,500 to 2,000 views within a week. <laughs> and I was like, wow, okay, so people really want this. So we continue doing this, and that's so easy. I mean, it costs nothing. It's just one of our marketing, marketing team members who's here tonight. Um, and the curator just with an iPhone, and you, you just give a, a short tour, and that has been traveling so far and also from my own experience, not just as someone who produces exhibitions, but also consumes a lot of content, it's been fantastic to have all these talks just on YouTube. Yeah. I mean, I think having the scholarship being recorded and circulate, and we record all our talks and we're still hybrid. Some of them are in person, others are just on Zoom. And that's been great to just kind of have access out of a sudden worldwide to these talks. And I think there was even an app um, that just gathered all the digital events during the pandemic that a friend of mine started. And you could just basically attend a talk in South Africa and in LA. And that was really exciting. So I think sometimes it can be a very easy, simple thing that just makes such a difference. And um, ICA also now started a few... Months ago, we joined Bloomberg Connect, so that's the app that a lot of museums use. So a lot of our exhibitions are online, all the didactics, the audio guides. So even if you're not in Miami, you can at least, you know, it's not the full experience. I agree with Pablo and Karen that it's still a very different experience to see artworks in person, but you at least can get a sense of the shows and like, get a glimpse of what's happening. And the data, so it's amazing that you're doing this and you're seeing the results, but the data, you know, we cannot have uh, our opinions, but the data doesn't lie. The reality is that we just have to see at those institutions and groups that are embracing this and then bringing uh, the right, you know, exhibitions, the right, uh, the right activations, their numbers, their engagement, their reach, just multiplying uh, uh, by a lot. Uh, you just you just mentioned that, uh, you know, that, that video that was seen by a lot of people. I am aware, in particular in the MoMA, that the Refica Nadal exhibition is just bringing a whole new audience. So for every one person that might be, well, I don't like this, or I'm not sure if I accept it, there's a thousand or a million people of new audiences that are that are being included in this in this in this uh, revolution. So thank you, thank you again. It's so important what you what you do. Um, I have one last general question, then we can open it up to everybody. I wanted to ask, since we're talking about curating in the digital age, how has the idea of the digital age affected your curatorial practice, specifically both of you, you know, as a personal thing and for you collecting, although your collection is so digitally focused, like how has it changed the way that you think about, about what digital is in art or has it? I don't know. Maybe it's always been there because we have had, you know, the new media for a long time, but. I'll take this one. Yay, thank you. <laughs> I don't know. I'm Like I said, I'm very object-driven. And when I plan an exhibition, I work with maquettes, which is very old school. You know, but I think a lot of museums still prefer that to an AutoCAD drawing. Um, so there's definitely a resistance curatorially to... to um, in my perspective, to, you know, t take everything that the digital technology has to offer. But I'll take it here and there where it enriches the possibility to exhibit and to make the connection with the viewer. So I'll, you know, I'll take the page turners and, you know, I'll take anything that uh, promotes accessibility, like the videos, uh, Instagram lives. I think those are all supp supplements to the curatorial practice. And of course, 
like Paolo was saying, it's up to the artists to challenge those models as well. So just like MoMA adapts to Rafik and Adol's production, then, you know, it, it'll come the time when we are all challenged by the digital tools that artists use. Um, but in the meantime, I'm still working on a, an architectural <laughs> maquette. <laughs> Good. <laughs> um, yeah, I feel there's so many ways of thinking about the digital and, you know, can, I mean, net art was a big thing in the nineties. I don't know who remembers, but I remember net art. Um, and yeah, the digital and art is one thing, but the digital and curating can be, as Karen mentioned, can be this very simple tools. And I was just thinking for me, it's always the most magic moment because for months and months and months and sometimes years, I just work with these little thumbnails in an Excel spreadsheet and, <laughs> We actually do sketch up models of the exhibitions, but then seeing a work scale up from this to most recently the Majiro's works are just like, wow. And that's just such a magical moment. And I think that's the translating back and forth, like digital, so many digital tools make curating so much easier. And especially now so many collections are moving online and there's Google Arts and Culture and it's actually been helping me a lot to find works in museums that you won't you know, you're mostly aware what MoMA and the Guggenheim has in their collection, but you don't know maybe what a small museum in the Midwest has in their collection. And you realize like, oh, they have this like work that I didn't even know of. And that's again, like giving it accessibility and kind of just, I feel it's important to continue thinking of the, the ways of back and forth between digital and physical. For me, the big difference from the other side, from the, you know, I'm going to talk from the collector side. Um, and, 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 and by the way, uh, let me make this very clear. I'm a huge advocate of the, let's call it the more traditional ecosystem of the art world. I actually try to bring uh, both the collectors and the artists from the digital side to include uh, uh, the good steps that uh, uh, institutions, the galleries, that uh, the different groups uh, do to push this ecosystem that I think it's positive. But as a collector, one of the main differences and what really drew me, uh, drew my wife and I here to, 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 to start really collecting in a certainly more active matter and just being more involved is that there's, it's very inclusive. Uh, uh, there's less of a barrier uh, when you, the first time that you go to a gallery uh, and you try to buy a, purchase an artwork for, for an artist, it is very, very rare that you ever connect with an artist. It is very, very rare that you might know about a lot of their work, about their practice, about even their, you know, uh, um, uh, how they go about their day to day. Uh, with the digital, again, and the way that we interact now online, social media, uh, uh, all of the majority of these artists are still alive, are still with us to, today, they're still producing, and they keep they keep on engaging with their audience, whether that is through Twitter or through Instagram, uh, through different events, uh, where the, collection, the connection between the artist and the collector is direct. Uh, and again, now galleries are starting to come in, institutions are starting to come in, groups are starting to come in, but I still feel that that connection with the artist is a lot more present. And I don't know for the rest, but for me, that's what wakes me up in the morning. That's what really, like, uh, uh, what really pushes me to keep on, uh, uh, to keep on doing this. And uh, for me, the big, 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 big difference here. Okay, guys, you're still here. <laughs> I wanted to open up because I'm sure you guys have questions for our panelists, honestly. Oh, there we go. We already have one. <laughs> Fascinated. Hold on, hold on. In this entire discussion, I haven't heard the letters AI. <laughs> Ooh, you're right. <laughs> and it strikes me that 
there's an AI avalanche coming down the pipe. And we're talking digital. We've been digital since 1970 yeah. when I first went to the Cambridge University computer and put in Hollerith cards. Um, we're talking about how digital can help. I'm wondering if AI, if you consider AI as a threat or an opportunity for the art world in general. Um, I'm just actually, as I was driving here, I was in my Uber and reading an article in the New York Times where actually the Nasher Museum at Duke University just had their first AI curated exhibition as an experiment. And it was really interesting because they said, um, you know, they were just gave chat GPT GPT, the task of like, oh, do something about surrealism and utopia, dystopia. And it started picking works. And they actually said it was interesting because some works they might have overlooked. But then um, obviously it also wrote the didactics and they were pretty garbled. So there was like a second layer of curators explaining it. And the, the danger was also it's like this echo chamber because it's not labeled. You can't really make surprising connections. So I think... Well, yeah, AI is such a wide term and even chat GPT is, you know, it's always what you feed it. It's not a system in itself, but it depends on what content you feed to it. So what comes out of it. So I think in the end, it's still, that's still a conscious de decision. Like, what do you give to the program? And I think they changed it. You can't really train it yourself so much anymore on the sources, which I think it was more exciting before. But. I tried recently. I had a project that I had to write 61 wall labels and I had two weeks to do it. And it was art. It was 60 different artists for a museum in Philadelphia. It was a collection from Miami going up there. Anyway, every, if, if you don't mind. No, that, no, go ahead. There's but actually I, a very <laughs> incredible work by an artist called Mario Klingelman that goes by the name Quasimondo, where it's actually an, a dog that he created an actual like dog that looks like a like a like a teddy bear uh but like a dog and it looks at paintings and it it it, it critiques the paintings uh utilizing ai and it's actually i thought is it was it an incredible this is uh yeah it's what it was presented in uh, uh in spain not that long ago and i love it uh if if if, if i may I, I you know uh, i certainly don't have a crystal ball i wish i had it and I don't know where we're going. And this AI has so many ramifications, even outside of art, that are really going to shape this. And we don't know where it's going to go. What I would say, though, is that it's very clear that now we're going to see an overabundance of supply of creativity. Uh, there's just going to be digital creativity everywhere of all types. And I think that it's very important to differentiate what is really created by the AI and what is created by a human while utilizing AI tools. So again, there's a handful of artists, in my opinion, and not more, unfortunately, but they, they, they will continue to come, that have been working with AI, with their own tooling in, in, in AI that they have created, that they're not prompting, that they're actually adjusting, uh, uh, that they're actually creating, that they're actually coding uh, and, 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 and giving all the learning mechanics that actually produce some works that are, in my opinion, extraordinarily relevant. And over time, looking back, those early AI works were really like AI outputs, but really, really created by the artist, I think are going to be, are going to transcend time very well. Uh, just I'll leave you with, with two or three, three names really uh, that, I, that I like here is Mario Kingelman that I just, that I just mentioned that I think he's a, he's a genius. Uh, uh, my, another one of, together with Andres, probably my second, uh, not my second, but my favorite artist as well with Andres. Uh, her name is Sofia Crespo. Uh, she's Argentinian. I think she's going to be extraordinarily relevant uh, over time. And then uh, there's another woman, a female artist uh, uh, that I think she's extraordinary. Uh, 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 
Yes, uh, she's extraordinary. Uh, her name is Helena Sarin, and she goes by the name La Colista. I'm glad you mentioned the artists using AI, like coding, to create the work, because I tried, I'm telling you, with the labels, <laughs> the 60 labels, I tried to use ChatGPT. Everybody was like, no, don't worry, you're going to get done in no time. Just use ChatGPT, put their name, put, put the work. There's so much artwork out there that doesn't exist online yet. And it's so important to think that, you know, the information that they're pulling is coming from what exists online. And so there's a lot of work that it's not on there and it's not using that as a source. Just like you said, they are only using what they know. So making the connections, which is a lot of the curatorial practice, is making the connections between work. It's so opinionated to and on, on who is putting together the exhibition. So we're not there yet with AI, I think, with GBT. No, because whatever. there's no question it can create, but for, for curatorial work, can yeah. it feel? Can artificial intelligence feel to make those connections or is yeah. it just coding? Yeah. yeah, And I think such an important part for me for about curatorial work is to kind of challenge the canon. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the exact opposite because it kind of reproduces the canon with like variables, but it's not about, well, can we think about this artist maybe in a completely different narrative, which has been happening so much over the past years, you know, you kind of look at historic positions saying that, well, it has been put into this one narrative, but the interesting part is to kind of look at different narratives and kind of include it there. 100%. Any more questions? Really? Yay. <laughs> Hi. Um, I kind of wrote some stuff down because I'm trying to really figure out how exactly to phrase this. But something I've been thinking about is I feel like now more than ever, the curator is an artist because of this digital age and the way like we are presenting work within like virtual environments, Web3, you know, digital galleries. And so some of the stuff I wrote down was like, where exactly is that line and if that line is blurred at any point so for example showing some sort of like 3d or like digital work on a screen does that screen become part of the work does that presentation become part of the work or like is the screen just mimicking the canvas right and if so if it is part of the work then at what point is that line does the white space in which is presented also become part of the work and because of that does that thoughtfulness in which the way the work is presented allow or even force the curator to become artist? I mean, I can only think of an example and it does become philosophical very quickly and not even thinking about NFTs or anything, but digital art. I worked on an acquisition in a German museum of an artist who did this kind of video loop through the museum and it was displayed on different flat screens. And as the museum was acquiring the piece, it was like, what is the artwork? Because he kind of manipulated the screen and there was like resin on it, epoxy, and he glued on some object and like some paint. And it's like, okay, what is the artwork? Because this flat screen is gonna break eventually, maybe in 30 years, maybe in 10, and we cannot buy it anymore, which we're already experiencing with acute manidors. So define for me what is the artwork and it becomes super interesting and it, it's always a creative solution in that way where you know i think we ended defining that just the surface of the screen is the artwork and it can be replaced with any other screen behind it and updated but yeah again the hanging hang a monitor on the wall or screen it that's all part of it and i think it is a very fine line to walk but that's also i feel where it gets fun 
And I think, I mean, sure, MoMA has like a lot of processes in place for that. Yeah, I mean, they even created the whole media conservator role specifically to address those very fine lines um, in all these questions that come up. Um, I can think of another artist, Agustina Woodgate, who was in Miami until not too long. Um, she just She's exhibiting now in the Media Biennial in Seoul, uh, South Korea. And, um, you know, it, it's funny to me because she's an artist who's worked with analog technology a lot. A lot of her work has to do with clocks, um, you know, battery-powered clocks. And she now found this scanner that's you know, popular in, in libraries or, yeah, in libraries usually where you scan and the scanner turns the page over. So again, this idea of the digital page turner that enables this kind of movement for the books. And so she was fascinated by this um, technology to be able to flip the pages of the book in the exhibition space. And um, she didn't think at first that the scanner was also retaining all the scanned information. So that's where the intelligence of the digital scan came into play. And it was a curator, Sofia Durron, um, an assistant curator for the Biennial, who said, what are you going to do with all this information? And sort of prompted that, you know, that question and challenged her to think and to challenge her to include that information in the artwork as well. So she ended up adding a screen in addition to this installation where she projected part of the scanned information. So sometimes those fine lines are also conversations between curators and artists, and it doesn't make the curator an artist, and it doesn't make the artist a curator, but it makes both parts more creative. Um, so it's enriching that this technology is coming to play, and when there's dialogue, you know, it's, it's more fruitful for all parts. I love that question. I thought I thought it was an incredible question, and I, I honestly I don't have a good answer for at least the part of the the, the, the creation other than than what they they, they just they just answered. Uh, what I would say is that um, I would, if I had to say whether uh, you know the frame or the screen is part of the artwork, my answer uh, would be no, unless in the case of some works, uh, for example, now I bring it up for the third time now, but people <laughs> has a set of works where the screens in which they are displayed, they are custom made and part of the work. They, they do have a creative component. And in that way, then yes, otherwise no. However, I do think that giving context to digital art and, and showing it properly is so important. It really changes the work. It is the difference between actually, you know, seeing it as a design, in my opinion, or as an actual artwork. Uh, unfortunately, they, or fortunately, the way that it's presented uh, very much uh, uh, makes a huge difference. And this is something that from this uh, ecosystem, we still need to improve a lot uh, from our end. Yeah, yeah. Not a lot of good solutions. I mean, oftentimes video work, the artist, no matter when the work is from, requires you to show it in a specific TV, right? How many times have you had to find like the, the cube, the Sony cube yeah. to display work? You know, it's, mm -hmm. it, it's part of... It's part of it. But that's actually become yeah. part of the object. Exactly. Right? So like without yeah. that, like especially when you see historical work, to see that cube is so relevant. Like I think that's absolutely. Really it's, it's, it's part of the part experience. Of the exactly right. 
But then it's funny because the like the media is what the collector has or what the museum has, and then you have to find this obsolete <laughs> object to show it on, which is part of the fun. Yeah, <laughs> the space and the wires and everything else. Oh, that might. Sorry, <laughs> no, no, it's it's fun. No, no. I have no idea what time it is. I don't know how long we've been here, but if you guys have more questions, we're happy to have. Let's take one more question. <laughs> How do you think um, the digital art experience is different for the viewer? Like, I'm just thinking about how, um, oh, it seems so loud. <laughs> the When you're a viewer in a digital experience, sometimes it can be a little bit overwhelming because you're seeing so many things. Like, I'm thinking of videos in particular, but like things flash so quickly, whereas like the traditional art experiences you might be staring at a painting from different viewpoints from like closer, further, and like really taking it all in. And how do you transition that as a curator to make it so the viewer can truly experience it properly and take it all in? I'm happy to, if you want to give a, a, so again, I think we need to, I want to be careful here with my answer, but I think we need to really, and this we need to be better as an industry and we need to do a better job from our end. But we need to separate what is entertainment from what is art, uh, which again, both are very valid. Uh, both uh, can certainly uh, incorporate many of these digital creatives uh, and creations. Uh, uh, but I do think that, uh, you know, as always, when you have an, an, an early nascent, either technology movement or, or industry or, or however you want to define it, you always get a lot of interest at the beginning, a lot of hype, and a lot of people that 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 that, that, that with the right intentions are trying, but they don't have the knowledge or the experience to uh, uh, to put the right uh, you know the right exhibitions uh, uh, the, the the right place out there. So I think that as we are evolving over time, we're going to continue to see more and more of these distinctions of what are again very valid but entertainment uh, activations and and artistic. I do agree with you that a, a very flashy, externally colorful, very high pace, uh, very moving uh, 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 visuals is very difficult to live by, uh, to live with and to and to really. Uh, that doesn't mean that it cannot exist, and I'm sure that many works can really uh, 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 do well with that. But overall, I think that we need to make a differentiation between uh, between both. Yeah. yeah, guys, thank you so much. Yeah. That's it. Thank you all. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.